Everybody, just a second to pile in and name the obvious that I am not Chris. So thanks for being here. Beautiful. Chris, nice to see you. Matt, nice to see you. Awesome. Um, Sydney, you're good. You ready to kick it off? We are ready to crash this episode. <laughs> crash in the best way. All right. Hey, everybody. What's up? Welcome back to another episode of Revenue Vitals Live to name the elephant in the room. Chris is traveling this week to San Francisco for some exciting meetings and such. So Sydney and I have decided to crash Rev Idols live today and co-host. So we're excited to have you guys here. Thank you for spending an hour with us. Like Chris always says, we know you could spend an hour literally anywhere. So we're pumped that you're excited to spend it with us. Um, We'll kick off today a couple announcements at the top. I think we might have some burning topics to riff on quickly and then AMA per usual. So if you've got questions top of mind that Sydney or myself could answer, go ahead and just start dropping them in the chat. Let me kick it off real quick with a couple of announcements. So as Chris mentioned last week, we have just launched a freemium version of the vault. Stephanie, I'll drop a link into the chat. If you're interested in getting in, seeing behind the scenes, understanding what we've been doing and building there for the last little bit, feel free to sign up totally free account. You'll get access to a handful or so of the materials that we've kept in the vault. And we would obviously love to hear your feedback. So hop in, sign up for an account, let us know what you think. In addition to that, on the vault side, we are also hosting our third event for vault stories next Thursday. We can drop a link for anybody that wants to join us for that as well. Um, We're actually going to be joined by Jim Holden, who's the CMO at Applied Visions. He's been a vault customer of ours. He's going to come on, talk about how he's been combating some of his challenges with progressive practices that he's found in the vault. So we'd love to see you there. Moving on down. Sydney, I don't know if you want to chat about this because I feel like it's your baby, but we did also just launch our Salesforce managed package that we're calling Watchtower. We've got a page up on our site finally to discuss all the things that you can do and see and expect from Watchtower. And I feel like Sydney, if you want to add anything to that. Yeah, definitely. Finally, um, live on our site. It's also live in the Salesforce app exchange. So you can go get information there. We've really just built this app based on all the issues that our customers were having with measurement and um, being able to track one funnel view and be able to look at capture demand and create demand, which is the self-reported attribution. So we automate all that for you. And it's kind of like a nice little easy button if you use Salesforce. So check it out. Let me know if you have any feedback, if you want to chat, my calendar is directly on there and you can book time with me. If not, just go check it out. Let me know what you think. Beautiful. Okay. And last thing on the announcements list before we get into the good stuff is you might've seen some buzz last week on LinkedIn. We've just launched Refine Studios to help us kick off this launch. We're actually going to do a stacking growth live creative teardown edition with Cassidy Shield, who's our chief growth officer and Triana, who leads up our creative team here um, next week. So there's a link in the chat to register for that as well. We'd love to see you there. 
And I think that was a lot, but closes out the announcements section for anybody that was here last week. Chris kind of got back into the rhythm of opening the session with um, like hot topics or burning thoughts. So I thought maybe we could try and keep that spirit alive. Sydney, is there anything top of mind for you that's, I don't know, hot topic seems like a lot of pressure, but anything that's top yeah, of mind? Yeah, geez. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I did post this on LinkedIn today, and I, we have been getting a lot of questions around events. And I think it's like event season right now. Obviously, we have a lot of in-person conferences coming, starting. We've got micro events, um, at least in the marketing space, um, in other industries as well. There's kind of full event season. So one thing that I've noticed, I had to actually kind of do like a little self-check. But one thing I've noticed is I'm seeing a lot more invites and promotion of events Uh, just in my feed, in newsletters I'm subscribed to, in communities I'm in. And these are virtual events, hybrid events, and then obviously you have the in-person conferences and then the sub-events around those conferences that people, you know, host. And there's a lot going on, like a lot of cool events, awesome speakers, things that I want to learn and consume as a person. And so I get excited about that. And I'm like, oh, I want to go register for that. Or oh, I should do that. And then, you know, my daily work life comes in and I'm like, ah, oops, forgot. Or my feed updates and it's not no longer there anymore. And then literally that's the last I see of this event and the speaker on the event. And I'm like, what? Um, so one kind of self-realization was, I wish I could see more of the actual events distributed to me, like in different ways. And I like, obviously I'm a marketer. I work with a lot of marketers, but I think any marketer could apply this is like, how do you take what you're already doing and then focus more on your distribution and consumption goal? I think one thing that Uh, we're doing a lot of webinars, like with the vault, for example. And one thing that was a learning for, for me was we did the webinar, we've got the micro clips, we've got all this, but now I need to go figure out and how to get, not only get this in front of the right people that we want to consume it, but how do I pull people in to want to watch the full event and not the micro clip, right? So how do I spark their attention when it's relevant to them? And they could have no idea about the event that even happened. Doesn't even matter. How do I spark that attention and then pull them in somehow to watch the full event? So I was feeling that pain. And so I feel like a lot of other marketers are probably feeling that pain. And then one thing that I'm kind of taking away from that is like, okay, how could we make our events better? You know, obviously we have Revenue Vitals Live, which is kind of like our pillar event, but we have a lot of like sub micro events that we are testing right now. Um, you know, we're going to have Stacking Growth Live. We've got this customer series for the vault. And we even have a lot of private exclusive events for the vault um, as well. So we have a lot of things going, but now I'm like, I need to switch gears and really focus on driving consumption of that content, not just, yeah, we distributed it. Yeah, we got this many views on the snippets, but really creating that flywheel. So that's just like, something I wanted to share that like I'm going through right now and learning and trying to get better and trying to figure out how we apply that here at Refine Labs. So that's my quick two cents, but 
Kaylee, I know you have a lot of other thoughts. No, no, it's such a good tip. It's such a good reminder. Honestly, I feel like the root of it comes from the planning process, right? And like, we are guilty of it, just like I'm sure others are as well, that we spend a large majority of our energy and our effort in the planning process, talking about making sure that we're getting the best speaker, understanding the content we want to cover, making sure we're promoting it ahead of time, all of those types of things. But in that planning process, it should be equally as important for us to spend probably, if not more, of our energy, probably the same, if not more of our energy talking about post-event fault, like not necessarily follow-up because it's not like we want to just like hound the same list over and over again, but post-event distribution, making sure that if there's a certain clip or a certain content topic or a segment that we want to cover in the event, we should know that going into it. So it's super easy for us to pass it over to like the post-production team and say, oh, like this is a hot topic in the space right now. That's why we covered it. We need to make sure we distribute it and having a plan for that distribution. I think that I can't, I think it was, um, the CMO of Uber flip Randy Frisch a long time ago, he and I were chatting and he's obviously spent the majority of his career in content. And he said a stat that has always stuck with me that 80% of content that's produced, even content in an event never gets distributed, never sees the light of day other than like, it's one, one hit wonder, which I think is so true for probably all of us. I think it's a really good reminder. My only, um, I guess like feedback or like maybe tip that others could use and go apply in that vein is uh planning process is going to be huge. Making sure that up front you're understanding your hooks and what you want to cover, but also having a plan cross-functionally to distribute, right? So it's like for us, if you're asking somebody that's maybe well-known in the space or has a similar following to you, like, cool, how are you going to also engage them to help with distribution so that it's not just all on your brand, but pulling in all of the like potential levers up front and creating a plan ahead of time will help others like feel engaged and compelled to contribute. Um, I think there are a couple of companies that are even doing this really well today with in-person events. So creating and generating content at in-person events is becoming a huge lever as well. It's great to create buzz on the floor, but the real benefit comes from how they distribute that content when they get back from the conference. hundred percent. Yeah. I think the, the planning process is like, all right, we have to figure out our content and experience is number one, like that, that content. And if it's relevant and what the hook's going to be is always, (laughs) is always going to be a, is number one, right. Then it's like, okay, move into event promotion, move into event distribution. And then I think it's really important to have some kind of consumption goals around that distribution. So you know, we have a great distribution flywheel for Chris's personal brand. And now we're figuring out what does our flywheel look like for our other events where, you know, it's not his main personal brand happening, right? So we're learning and going through this at the same time and how we tailor things uh, to the different event types, to the different audiences and to the different kind of goals of each event, to be honest. So that's kind of the framework I'm thinking about it in. and. I think a a good thing that we will start doing is having kind of more documented like consumption goals, not just, yes, we distributed it here, here, and here, but what consumption did we get out of that is kind of the next layer, in my opinion. 
Cool. Yeah, I know it's brilliant. And then I'll say quickly, the other thing that's maybe not new, but also like an important call out is like serial content is all the rage and a somewhat new KPI that um, a friend of mine is tracking in the event space is repeat attendees, which is why we had also like put that on one of our internal KPI documents as well Is like how many people are actually showing up week after week after week. I think it gives a good, similar to like consumption. It's a really good leading indicator for understanding layers that could eventually become hero pipeline or qualified revenue, whatever that looks like for your business. So KPIs for sure. Consumption is an interesting one as well that we should start testing out. All right. So for anybody that's joining live, let me say, obviously Chris is not here. He's traveling for work this week. So Sydney and I are going rogue and co-hosting today's event. Um, so you've got two marketers on the line, um, and we're happy to riff about anything and everything. If you've got questions as always drop them into the chat, we'll prioritize anybody that wants to come on live and chat with us. Otherwise, as we've mentioned last week, we've got a really good backlog. We'll start with that and then prioritize anybody that wants to join us. Let's All do right. it. Let's do it. Okay. We actually got an events question. So this feels relevant. Let's chat. Let's start with that. This person says we're having a difficult time creating engagement on our live events through AMA, Q&A, dialogue, practical use cases, feedback, et cetera. There's not much of any of that happening. So our SME just comes off as a talking head. I'd like to end up more such as the engagement dynamic that you're achieving here on Rev Vitals Live as an example. It's not terrible for repurposing short form content, but I prefer engagement from the audience instead of crickets. Any ideas? I would love to know who this audience is. That's like, that's my first question. Who is your audience? We know our audience likes to give feedback and likes to like be engaged in the conversation. So I think maybe... That's why we see that in some of our events. Um, so number one, I'd kind of ask, you know, what is your audience? Is it, are they like participating in other ways, just not in the event? Um, obviously I want to like dig in a little bit deeper here, but without knowing that, go ahead. Hold on. Todd just commented in a chat and he said, he thinks it's me. He's happy to come on and participate. Let's, let's riff. Hang on one second, Todd. I'll ask you to unmute so we can ask some follow-up questions. Yeah. Hey everybody. Glad to be here. Hi, Todd. Hi. The audience is primarily strength and conditioning coaches in college athletics departments. And we sell a business-to-business SaaS product, which um, I describe as a tech-enabled health and wellness offering um, that supports um, elite college athletes uh, be guided towards healthier sleep, more efficient recoveries, and just generally being readier to perform not only in their sport, but, but in their academic life in college as well. Our subject matter expert is, you know, founder of the business. Um, he's very well thought of, well connected. His name is Justin Rothlingshofer, 15 years in NC2A um, performance coaching and sports science, as well as time in, in pro sports. And he can talk um, just about almost anything in, in the space very comfortably without, you know, and spontaneously but I'm trying to get him to stop talking and get him to engage with the, the group, um, which he's doing. He's trying to do. Um, but when he's asking questions and prompting people and asking by name, like we're not getting much, much, much back. And we're, and we're definitely not getting to a point of uh, being able to discuss practical applications by people sharing what some of their challenges are that we can really talk in kind of real terms about 
deploying the offering or, or at least having an engaging conversation about one's environment and, and how we can how we could suggest ideas for them to take next steps. I've got a few follow-ups. Admittedly, I have never been a college athlete, so I am not this persona, uh, which means I have follow-up questions. I'm curious to better understand. You said he's well-connected. He's well-connected. How? Like, where do these people spend time? How do they hang out? And therefore, how are you hosting these events? Uh, LinkedIn primarily, but there's, you know, there's a lot of action for him on on Twitter um, as well. Um, We are hosting once a month live events utilizing Zoom. Um, This month, we're trying to make a transition to twice a month. We've been building registrations and attendance, but I'm actually not all that concerned, but it's nice to see that building up to about 75 to 100 um, attendees, maybe off of 200-ish registrations. Uh, You know, just to give some context to it, he probably has a you know, a LinkedIn following of 12 to 15,000 followers. And um, we've been, you know, for six months plus, we've been playing the game of uh, connect requests, you know, maxing those out for him. And he, you know, we're, we're guiding him to engage with that audience. We're, we're, we're posting on his behalf. He's, he's supporting that. Um, And um, it seems that that's, that's where most of the community is being built. I'll lead by saying that's awesome. Like a really, really strong start. I think that one, having a CEO or a founder at all that understands the value in putting the work in here is huge. So that's great that you're already like over that hill. I feel like most marketers are stuck on the other side of that hill. Um, As far as the engagement goes, I'm like, I'm impressed, right? Like you've got, you know, attendance is growing, registrations are growing, et cetera. It's just that maybe it's twofold, right? You the beginning of your statement, you said like he can talk and he can talk about anything and maybe he talks a lot. So maybe mm-hmm. some of it is like coaching. I don't know enough to be able to provide like any more um, commentary other than that. But I think a, a lot of CEOs are great talkers. Um, it's a different muscle to be an empath and like understand how to read the room. So maybe some of it is just like you enabling him to say, Hey, like these people are really interested in your, you know, your time, your brain share, etc. Like let's try and do 20 minutes of you riffing. And then like, let's hold the rest of the hour for Q and a to maybe like build more of a block for him so that he allows the room time to engage and feel like they can speak up. I think that if it's a issue of momentum and getting the ball rolling, seed questions are always great. If you have a couple of people in your network that are fans or friendly with your brand or your CEO, asking them to join an episode, a couple of episodes, et cetera, to say like, Hey, we need somebody to rip off the bandaid. We all know who those people are like internally for us. It's Carl, right? Carl's always the person on our (laughs) team that rips off the bandaid for internal meetings and like creates a comfortable space for people to feel like they can ask questions. So maybe asking a couple of fan, fans or friendlies to join could help the room feel a little bit more comfortable. Those are like my super tactical tips. Sydney, where's your head at? Yeah. I think if he does have a LinkedIn presence, we do this actually, we've done this a couple of times. Like we'll purposely say we've gone two ways. We'll throw out a topic that we want to talk about. And then we'll ask in our LinkedIn post, like a week before the event, what questions do you have? you know, drop whatever in, in the comments. And then you could use those comments to be like, 
Allison asked on LinkedIn this question, even if she's not there live, like let's respond to that to kind of get the Q&A portion rolling, going to get in that rhythm. The other thing you could do is literally say next week or on this next event, we're going to be doing a live Q&A, submit your questions here, like more publicly, like saying it's going to be more of a Q&A might also help the audience to go into that event with that expectation as well. So those, not sure if you're already doing that, but. Yeah, those are great suggestions. We're coming, we're promoting a, a topic specific event. And so we're not all the way to doing just Q&A in, in free form, such as, a, such as your motion. But um, I think the ideas are great. I'll, uh, I'll factor them in. We have an event on Thursday and I'll let you know how it goes. Can't wait Love to hear it. about it. Yeah, report hey. back in, in the next episode. <laughs> I will. Thanks for letting me have some space and time here. Yeah. yeah, of course. Thank you for joining us live, hopping on kind of impromptu. I appreciate it. Yeah, Nick okay. just dropped in the chat too that um, they have in a monthly event series that was going really well, but they didn't feel like the audience didn't feel like they were building a relationship with the host. So they ripped off the bandaid and they're doing it a week. That's the best. If your audience wants more, put on the gas. That is a great signal. Yeah. I'd love to know. He says too, it's like best decision we ever made. I'd love to know if the signals are like quantitative or qualitative. If people like, how is it that you're connecting on those signals of you being able to confidently say it was the best decision you've made just so that others can also learn from that. I'm curious to know if it's like a buzz in the chat or, oh, you want to join us? Nick, I just saw you turn your camera on. Got you. Let's do it. it. Hey. Glad to have you here. Good to be here. What's up? Nothing much. <laughs> Just hanging so, with some marketers. <laughs> right. It's the best way to spend an hour of your day. So we were doing the monthly event. And what we found was that not enough. It just wasn't enough. And when we look at like what you guys are doing and why these events are so successful, it's because people feel connected to Chris. He's built a relationship with the audience. And so we looked at him and we said, how is it possible that we can't do this if we do this once a month. The secret is it's the not so secret is in the frequency and the ability to build relationships with people, answer their questions, have a dialogue. And so that was like one of the first early signals that we said, we need to find a way to make this happen. So the, you were talking a little bit about this earlier, which is like, we have like a spectrum of intent that we track. And it's basically like, does somebody register for, for the event and never show? low, probably no intent. Then we have, do people register and show? Do they register as the source of, is the website or do they register source LinkedIn? Same action, way different level of intent. Much harder to get someone to register for your event through a LinkedIn post than it is through your website. And so we built out this spectrum and we track it. We, and we track the contact intent week over week, like you were talking about, do people return? Do people return, turn their cameras on? Do they return, turn their cameras on, ask a question? And we've just seen all of those things build the more we go, the more frequent we do them. And then we turn it around and I'll go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I'm so fascinated. You're the camera on, I think just got, got me a little bit. <laughs> like you're it's, that's an insane level. I think it's like an insane level of intent, but it's also super fascinating to me that you're tracking it. And I'm assuming it's so important to your brand that you're tracking it manually. 
Yeah. I mean, we don't, our events aren't huge right now. I mean, we've been, we've done, we did the monthly events for six months. We're on week four of weekly. So it's not super hard to track how many people. I think we get about 20 people per event um, to show up live. And then we have our distribution mechanisms through the podcast, through our YouTube, we have shorts, reels, LinkedIn. I mean, and we have a whole team that chops it up and throughout the end of like the hosts accounts and all that stuff. Um, so the, the tracking isn't super hard at this scale. You know, when you have hundreds of people show up, it's a lot, but we don't have that problem. So yes. the, 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 yes. yeah. So the idea is that the spectrum, it's just kind of like it infinitely moves forward. And so when people show up, um, people may not may register today and not show up for six weeks because they catch the content on the replay, low intent, right? And then they show up for six weeks with their camera off. And then they show up one day and their camera's on. And they show up for weeks with their camera on. And then they put a couple of things in the chat. And now they're willing to come on live and have a conversation with you. You can't do that if you're only hosting an event once a month. Or it's going to take you 12 years to get there. Hmm. It's so good. I'm like, I'm fascinated with the the layers of spec. I think you're calling it spectrum of intent. Maybe that's like a coined term already, or maybe y'all are coining it right now. Either way, I'm, uh, I'm impressed. I think it's really relevant. I think that we are even us like always trying to find ways to innovate and like the repeat attendees is something that I think is important as we continue to grow this business is to understand everybody knows Chris, right? But how, how much deeper are we getting with expanding that reach and expanding the amount of people that want to show up here, stacking growth, whatever it is we're doing weekly, because it's like not only on one program, but multiple programs for us. And we, you know, the deeper that you can embed yourself, you know, the more educated and qualified they are when they decide to raise their hand and come inbound. And that's applicable for every business. So this concept of spectrum of intent is really resonating. Cool. Thanks. I'm glad. I'm glad we've been, we've been kind of filling it out for a little bit now, trying to figure out exactly how to wrap it up. And so I'm glad it communicated. Well, that's another part of, of us trying to test out what we're talking about here. The, on the back end, we talk about like, right. So Chris's brand is so valuable in that he has this person, people feel like they have this personal relationship because he's done these every week for so long. And it's translating to you and to Sydney now to everybody who does them. And so it's like, that is that that in, that intent doesn't necessarily transfer over the way we think it should just because it's wrapped in the umbrella of the event that is valuable right we, like the event and the branding around the event that we host it does have merit but it doesn't just transfer over from one host to the other when our host isn't available we can't we try to plug other people in and it still works to some degree but it's not nearly the same because they haven't built the relationship we had a rotating cast for the first few months with the different coaches that work at our company and they all provide different bits of value but the people want to come back because they want to learn from the same type of people things like that so saying so we've you can split that up and as you move down the spectrum or maybe it's a continuum as you move forward <laughs> through it we we figured out very quickly who were our most valuable personalities and then we kind of double down there and then we bring other people in for the most valuable ones, quote unquote, most valuable ones to support those so that we can try to help use that to, to bridge and build for build other people's authority and expertise in what we do. So it's been, it's been cool to experiment and test this stuff and try to build all of this all at the same time. This is advanced hot tip central for everybody here. Like it's awesome. Uh, 
So, I mean, that's something that we, we try to do here is, you know, have different uh, personalities or just like areas of expertise. Um, obviously Chris is our, his, his brand leads everything, but um, I might have a different take. Kaylee has different experiences. We have different backgrounds where we meet, we will be able to connect differently with different types of people. And, you know, we want to be able to reach people. Um, and we enable our entire team to do that if they choose to as well. Um, you don't have to, sometimes I go in waves, I'm really into it. And then I'm like, ah, I'm not so into it. And that's probably, uh, you know, why my personal brand is not as big as Chris's. So, um, but it's, it's really interesting to your points of how to use different personalities in a consistent way. I think that's one of the learnings we had last, uh, last season on our podcast is we had a lot of rotating hosts, uh, which was great. Um, but the audience was struggling to connect with certain people because it was rotating so much. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a key learning for us. Same. We got the same exact output that you did from, from running that ourselves. Yeah. It's so interesting. I think like one of the, one of the things I think that we could try and start picking up on just as, um, as an industry, as marketers, whatever you want to call classify us as, is I think we see this done really well across several more B2C brands. Maybe, maybe some of them even would technically classify themselves as B2B, but mostly B2C brands. There's like, I'm from Nashville, Tennessee. We have a a guy here, his name's Dave Ramsey. Maybe he's more popular than I know, but he does this really well. He's primarily B2C. Um, and he is, you know, the leader of the brand. He's the founder. He leaned into the power of telling his story early on. And that's like a large reason behind why his brand and his company has been so successful. However, over time, he's understood that, you know, his whole thing is like the path to financial freedom. Um, and getting there, that journey to get to financial freedom looks differently, depending on who you are, where you come from, what your background is, your age, all of those types of things go into, you know, what makes up your journey. And as a result, he now has multiple personalities that are specialists in all of those areas that speak directly to his primary personas that end up, you know, buying his course or engaging with his like wealth management or whatever it is. And I think that's something that we'll see gradually come into the B2B space as well as this like creator economy really takes off. Um, and event led growth is taking off personalities and multiple personalities that represent your personas and your buying committee will be a huge thing. So I think like to Nick's point of trying to understand how like here, Chris is obviously our main brand and our main personality, if you want to classify him that way. Um, but he doesn't necessarily make up every persona that we sell into or that we work with or partner with. So even we are trying to better understand how we more effectively and efficiently reach our buyers. Um, and I think that's probably something that Nick y'all are testing out too. That was a good hot take on events. Like we were in there. Loved it. I know. I I learned some stuff. This is great. I'm going to say, yeah, if I really like the back and forth, obviously if we bring on, if we do another question and somebody has like a additional commentary or something they've learned or even a loss, like a, you know, a learning, that's maybe not a win that you feel confident, like coming on and sharing. That's awesome. And obviously that's the whole reason we do this. So feel, feel comfortable. And Nick set the stage for that. Feel comfortable and come on and join us. Um, let me hop into a couple more questions we've got in the backlog. Let's see where we want to go. 
Oh, Sydney, this is definitely for you. We've got a watchtower question. It says, just curious about watchtower. Is this designed to run alongside the existing Salesforce reporting across existing sales and marketing silos? Interesting the way the question is framed. Um, or is this designed to replace existing reporting? Great question. We've designed it to run alongside um, with maybe the hopes that eventually you adopt it and re it replaces all of your reporting, but trying to come in and rip and replace reporting that is so embedded and processes and things inside of an organization is just not, not the way to, to go about it. In our opinion, we've that you're going to have low success rates. You're going to it's going to be like a huge change management issue and take a long time. So um, basically, if you use Salesforce, we'll come in, install the application, and um, it has its own set of reporting and its own object and things like that. And you can use it and customize it to your exact instance and maybe whatever flows that you have going on. Um and we specifically created it that way because uh, we found getting people to change their existing automations, workflows, fields, field values, anything like that is uh, pretty challenging and takes a long time. And we want people to say, be able to, you know, install this and like immediately see hybrid attribution, immediately see conversion tracking, um, and then over time kind of implement it and use it how it makes most sense in the organization. So it complements unless you're, unless you're, you know, all in and you want to rip and replace and you're there. Sure. But not a requirement. Brilliant. Sydney, I figured you'd have a, have a good response to that. Chris, welcome. Yeah, you want to join us live real quick? Sure. Um, so yeah, our head of marketing uh, proposed a 48% investment in trade shows, um, traditional trade shows. So like, not what we're doing now, but a booth, stuff like that. Um, so I'm assuming you'd you'd recommend something different. Um, just kind of curious how do you approach this sort of you know issue problem? Do you feel comfortable setting the stage a little bit more? Like what are you who what persona are you selling mm -hmm. into? How what are what are these trade shows looking like? And then I have other questions about your actual presence at the trade show. Yeah. So we're a cybersecurity uh, company. We sell to um, like obviously CISOs ultimately, but also like a little bit more practitioners to some extent, um, you know, managers of uh, cybersecurity related fields, things like that. Um, and then, sorry, what was the other question? Like what, what did the trade shows look like or yeah. What do these trade shows look like? Are they massive a hundred thousand plus attendees and you are one vendor booth in a sea of 150 or does it look a little different? I will admit I've never been to a specific CISO based trade show. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's like, it's kind of a mix. So like there's RSA, which is like what you described, like huge uh, humongous or, or black hat is another one um, like that. But I think the majority of these are like smaller, but not not like super small, like, I don't know, maybe a thousand, five thousand attendees and like that. Okay, cool. I have thoughts. Sydney, do you want to go first or you want me to kick it off? No, Kaylee, I feel like you <laughs> you're you're kind of the event pro here. So, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Why would you put that so much pressure on me? Okay. <laughs> Here's my thing. I will admit, and I already did, like I, I've never sold into CISOs, so I don't quite understand your audience as well as I probably should. However, 
largely buying a booth, buying carpet, buying the upgraded Wi-Fi, you know, all the stuff that comes with like huge traditional trade show events is very, very expensive. I don't know what 48% of your budget looks like, nor will I ask you to like confess it to us, but mm. I would imagine that the dollar amount is pretty hefty. Yep. I, instead of, let me say it like this, instead of knowing what I know, which is obviously limited, I would not suggest spending that money on the actual like 10 foot by 10 foot patch of carpet. I would suggest reinvesting that money into a micro event the fact of the matter is, you know, that 10, you know, 10, maybe of your top CISOs in your top accounts are going to be at whatever black hat event that you just mentioned. And so instead of trying to spend, I don't know, four minutes on a loud, busy, ruffling floor with them, trying to track them down and get them to book a meeting or whatever your objective for the conference is, why don't you invite them to an executive dinner? Maybe you could have your CISO come as well to serve as an SME at that executive dinner invite 10, I don't know, 20, whatever you feel comfortable with of your top account CISOs or personas that you know are going to be there to an executive dinner. Maybe it's an hour, maybe it's two hours. If you can hold them for two hours, have a meaningful you know, conversation, maybe even like feature some programming where your CISO is like telling part of your story or talking about some hot topic that's in that space. That way you can connect with them and actually start to build a relationship. I would imagine it's probably a long sales cycle. This isn't like a one and done engagement. So it's like going to be more relationship focused. If you're going to that event and your head of marketing's only objective is to close 10 deals, you know, maybe that's actually your problem. You should start with, you know, measurement and objection setting first, um, but to me, it seems like it would be a relationship building opportunity and getting those people out of the event hall and into a dinner somewhere where you can have meaningful conversations and start to build those relationships would be a better way to spend that money and arguably cheaper than a 10 by 10 booth on the floor. Yep. I agree <laughs> for sure. That's the, the rip the bandaid off, which I love. Yep. Oh um, yeah, maybe it is. <laughs> I mean, it is right. Like if you could like sell that and pitch that, I think that's like the end state you want to get to. I have seen like, how do you, how do you get the baby steps to get there? So say you're already booked for the trade show. You're already paid for it for, I don't know, half of them. Like mm -hmm. what can you do at that event? Maybe you cancel one of the later trade shows to pilot and test the idea that Kaylee was just mentioning you got to pick the right one. You got to have enough planning, right. To, to do that and to execute it well. Um, or maybe there's, you're already there. How do I get, um, X customer interviews or how do I get X? I'm going to go around to my persona. I'm going to ask them these questions. I'm going to create this content. I'm going to distribute it post the event. And then after the event, I'm going to come back and show the business, the results, like, we had a thousand people stop by our booth and we got a thousand badge scans, but I got this content, you know, hundred thousand impressions and that's actually the value. Um, so I don't, I'm not sure what situation, if you're, if like, if you can rip that bandaid off, like do it, but if you need to kind of like step into that, I think there's ways that you could step into that too. Yeah, that makes sense. And Sydney, I think I actually asked this like in a community at one point and you answered uh, this related question. You said like maybe finding ways of, uh, you know, I, I don't know, showing the value or lack thereof 
of the events in the past as well, like by splitting the funnel yeah. or like other methodology might be valuable to kind of come with data and say, hey, maybe we shouldn't do one a month and we should do, you know, one every other month or, or whatever would kind <laughs> of baby steps it would would help. Yeah. You know, we're, you know, we're big fans of split the funnel around here, yeah. um, which side note that analysis and that template is actually free in the vault free account. So if you want to go check it out, you can. Um, but yeah, if you say, Hey, instead of booking 20, here's the data, let's book five and then do these five experiments and then like come back level set. Um, I mean, that's some of the stuff we're that, you know, I think we're going through internally too. Kaylee is going to be testing and partnering with um, our sales team to test some events we and see how they go. And we, you have to constantly check in on that. And what is the goal? And what are we going to do? And why are we going to do that? You have the setup is so important, or else the results will just probably not get the results that you want. And then they'll be like, "Yep, see, we should just keep doing trade shows." <laughs> right, so. Exactly. I yeah. Agree. And I think, I think to Sydney's point too, there for anything that you're already, maybe you can't rip off the bandaid and go the dramatic route. So that's cool. Um, I think the one way to frame it is that, um, a couple of weeks ago I was on an event with Nick Bennett, who's over at Airmeet now. And he had asked like, what does a poor case study look like for showing up in at a trade show and an event marketing? And I think that my response and the way I framed it was Basically, if you just show up, set up your booth and talk to people on the floor, to me, that's a poor event, right? Instead, you need to approach it as like, okay, we're going to have 10 people boots on the ground for 72 hours. What can we do in those 72 hours to make the absolute most of it so that this thing has legs? Um, you know, your customers are going to be there. Some of them you probably already have a relationship with. Cool. Like let's at least get like a survey. I think Austin had joined us a couple of weeks ago and we had given some of these tips to him as well, but like, yeah, getting qualitative surveys, having 20 minute conversations with some of your core personas or ICP, um, an exec dinner would be obvious, like obviously great, but maybe that's the cherry on top. I think there are small wins that you can get if you approach it from like, this is how much time we have boots on ground. This is how many people we know are going to be there that we should connect with. Let's divide and conquer and make that plan. Um, instead of centralizing all of your efforts on the booth. So if your head of marketing is, um, insistent on trying a booth route, maybe you try both. Like it doesn't have to be and, or, you know, it doesn't have to be, or it could be an and scenario for now until you prove out with, you know, some data points that there's a better path. Exactly. No, that was great. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Sure. All right. Sydney, we are still on the event next. I know. Event takeover episode. (laughs) I know we'll make sure and title it as such whenever we post it to the feed. Um, let's switch gears. Maybe let's try and switch gears. Who knows? Maybe somehow we land right back on events. Um, we've got a content question too. Um, let's see. This person says that they've looked through some of our clients, LinkedIn ads, and their ads are well-designed. They also seem very thoughtful with the message that each one is trying to convey, Bottom line, they're great ads, but when it comes to helping teams put together LinkedIn ads for your own clients, do you have a specific process or helpful tips that you can share? Is the research the most important? Is it the copy, the creative, et cetera? I think this person just needs yeah. to know where to start. Well, our creative team is great. So I 
you know, I'm going to try to do them as much justice as I can here, but um, this person should definitely join the uh, stacking growth creative takedown, which those are just fun. So <laughs> I'll be there as well. So we do have kind of a standard creative process. You know, we don't just like, Hey, what's your request? Great. Here's the output. Um, I think that's probably a downfall of some creative that maybe doesn't land as well, doesn't really go into hitting on the right pain point tailored to the audience. So we do have a standard process. I'll kind of go over high level, but we always, for every new client, we're always going to do a creative analysis and really dig into their messaging and all of that. You can kind of do that internally for your own brand. Um, and we're going to see, okay, what are their strengths and weaknesses from a creative side. And when we say creative, it's not, it's including the messaging, including the copy and also the um, actual creative could be motion, could be uh, animation, could be just elements that they're using in their creative contrast, things like that. So we always kind of originally start with an idea of like a strategy. What is a campaign strategy based on the goal of what we're trying to do or what we want to communicate to the audience. Um, and then underneath that like hierarchy of a campaign strategy, we're going to look at and go into copy. And that's really, we, st we always start with copy first. Um, I think copy drives a lot of design components and they work really well when they're executed together, but we always start with copy to really one, write the hook. Like we got to hook them somehow. We got to say something different. We got to say, we got to elevate this and, and tailor it to the platform, LinkedIn, YouTube, you know, TikTok, whatever. Um, this is in a LinkedIn example. Um, so we do that. Uh, we're going to obviously get reviews and get feedback on that. And then we do go into um, actual design proofs and design uh, revisions. So that's like the very, very high level of our process. Obviously there's a lot of subs process in there, but um, I think the core of what I've seen, why some of our creative does really well is because there's a structured campaign strategy and normally a theme around every campaign strategy as well. I think that really drives the other two components. So like a campaign strategy is um, basically there's a bunch of ways to talk about your business um, and each creative like flight should be a new opportunity to explore a different benefit, a different value prop, um, a different message under, under one unified strategy. And then a theme is how you execute that strategy um, and we get pretty fun and creative with the themes that we roll out to entice that engagement. So that's kind of what we do. Again, that's like the high level, high level um, aspect of it. And then Ashley had a great, great hot tip in the chat here, which is the creative brief is a good unlock too to get everybody on the same page. And we do this with our clients and even um, internally, depending on like what we're trying to execute. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. It really does all start with the creative brief. I've worked at so many companies that have a huge, really talented in-house creative team and nobody has taken the time to create a creative brief. And so creatives are left 
basically trying to figure out how to read your mind. And most often they aren't the SME of whatever product or software you're selling. And that shows, it shows in the work they're able to deliver because nobody has enabled them. It's like the biggest piece of internal enablement for a creative team is the brief. Um, So spending a lot of time there is key. And Scott had a good take too. An easy place to start um, is to start with your top sellers and just chat with them, ask them like when an amazing lead comes in, what do they know? What do they believe um, that you wish everyone else did too? um, As like a, a good starting point, a thought starter to figure out where to start for your for your audience. That's a good riff. Sydney, I think we have time for one more. Let me try and skip yeah, through this do back one more. real quick. Um, yeah, if see. anyone else wants to come in live, feel free. But... Omar was on a couple of weeks ago and asked this and we haven't had a chance to get to it. So now that you're here, maybe we should just riff on it together. Um, okay. Omar said, yeah, for a small company, what are the fundamentals or foundation to have set up to start implementing true revenue R and D for example, a weekly meeting. If so, what's reviewed, what should be done monthly, Uh, It seems like the root of his question is more about the culture and the discipline for the behavior that needs to adopt this successfully versus, versus like the actual act of like orchestrating or architecting the programming itself. It's like internal. Yeah. There are two kind of big things that come to mind is one functions and roles and responsibilities of how you're going to like operate this framework is key. If you're not aligned on that, then it might just probably lead to chaos a little bit. And then number two is the infrastructure that you're going to need. Mainly the infrastructure to kind of report on like the actual results to be able to actually operate in in a framework like revenue R&D. But those are like the two, I would say like prerequisites um, before you even get into like, what do our current programs look like and auditing that? And what do we want to do and invest in for programs we want to start and experiments we want to run and initiatives and tactics and all of that. A lot of people like jump into that. So there's one thing that in order to adopt or to use revenue R&D, you don't need to do this like gigantic organizational structure change, like not at all. I recommend that people actually look at it in, in functions rather than like dedicated roles and who reports to who and all of this. The whole point of the framework is that it's cross-functional and it brings in a lot of different um, standard departments into one operating framework. That doesn't mean you need to go reorg your whole company. So that's, I think, one just like misconception. So the key roles that you definitely want to think about is you want to have like a revenue R&D leader, like who is the strategy owner of that? The next one, the next couple components of this, um, there's actually a visual that Chris posted about this on his LinkedIn, Um, but you have the other components is so revenue R&D, you'll have external research that you're going to get from wherever that will feed into your revenue strategy. And then we have what we call revenue engineering, and then revenue execution. Those are like, these are functions of ways to think about it. So you definitely need to have a clear owner for who owns the um, strategy and then who owns the engineering. And then multiple people are going to be involved and incorporated to actually fuel the execution. 
So I can kind of give you a brief example here. Obviously, we have our whole executive team that really kind of owns company and company strategy, business alignment, revenue strategy. You know, Kaylee owns revenue engineering. She's our VP of revenue R&D. She owns revenue revenue engineering and multiple people, Chris, myself, uh, Carl on sales, all of uh, Scott, who's our director of demand gen, all of these people have different components in revenue execution. Stephanie on here, uh, she has components in, in our revenue execution plans. Um, but, you know, Kaylee's kind of the reviewer and oversees kind of the programs. Are programs working? Are they not working? Why? And I think you kind of need to have that. Who owns the high-level strategy, long-term strategy? And then who owns like the engineering and execution? So that's my short hot take on that. Beautiful. The only things I'll add that maybe are tactical and very specific to us and hopefully like help shed some mm-hmm. light on how we're doing it. For us on Mondays, we have a an executive team call. In those calls, we're responsible for providing updates and insights, peeling back the curtain, what we're doing, all of those things. I have recently just started restructuring all of my updates to be shared out for accountability for all of us in the formatting of revenue R&D. So I provide updates each week to the executive team on what we're doing and how we're prioritizing any infrastructure needs, progress made, blockers, entropies, et cetera. Um, I have a proof of concept section that updates us on all of the programs we're launching that are in proof of concept, where they're at, maybe what's blocking them, what's working well, all of those things. And then commercialization as well, so that we know if things are still beating the drum, if anything's moving, what we're testing within commercialization programs, et cetera, just so that one, it holds me accountable to do the things I'm supposed to be doing. And two, provides transparency to the team so that we're all bought in and committed on what's working and what's not. And then secondarily to that, I'll say that it's so important. We run all of our programs in monday.com. And in that, the most important column, arguably outside of all the other things we know are like table stakes is a phase review date. So it's really easy to get programs off the ground. It's not so easy to commit to reviewing them and being very critical of what's working and what's not on a routine recurring basis. So making sure that you are proactively setting phase review dates to say, this is in phase one, we're going to come back in maybe 30 days for whatever it's worth. My phase review dates are not like always 30 days or always 10 days or whatever the thing is, it's very dependent on that program and which phase it's in, but setting that date and holding yourself and whoever is helping execute that program accountable to come back on that date and report in is super helpful and has been helpful for us. So those are, those are my two things I'll add to what Sydney already mentioned. Love that. The tactical tips. Um, And then proof of concept programs, just so you guys are aware are phase one through three. Uh, those are going to be what we consider proof of concept phase four through five are, those are our powerhouse. That's our LinkedIn. That's our podcast, right? Um, those are our consistently firing programs. So that's, those are the buckets that Kaylee was mentioning of how she breaks out her updates. So just wanted to clarify that for listeners, but I think that was a great way to wrap up, uh, our takeover episode and who knows if, I'll ever be invited back, but it was fun to hang out with you all. I so much appreciate you joining as we will um, call you up 
unannounced like we did last week that you can totally expect that. Anyways, thank you to everybody that joined us today and listened and participated. We appreciate you so much. Chris will be back next week. We'll see you next Tuesday. Bye everyone.